So at the park across the street from our house, there are lots of really fancy swings and slides and climbing walls and ramps and forts, you name it, a really nice park. But there's also a, a sand pit where the kids can play with like toy tractors and backhoes and build things. The problem is I've noticed every time it rains, that sand pit fills up with water and becomes just a big muddy mess. And it's interesting to watch kids play in that sand pit after a big rain. They get mud everywhere on their shoes, their pants, their hands, their faces. Some of the younger kids even try to eat the dirt. And uh, if you're watching, you'll hear a, a mom sitting on a bench nearby say something like, now don't eat the dirt, Johnny. They're all having this, this grand old time playing in the mud. And when we see a young child playing in the dirt, we don't make a big deal about it because we know that's what kids do. They play in the dirt and they get messy. They even try to eat dirt. They scrub themselves in dirt. Dirt is a, a toy to a child. But you know, if you were to see a 30-year-old man playing in the dirt, rubbing himself with dirt or trying to eat dirt or you know, getting dirt all in his hair, then you know something's not right. This doesn't make sense. Something doesn't add up. The only difference between the two is time. By the time someone's 30 years old, that guy ought to know that dirt's not a toy, right? Well, the original readers of this letter that we've been talking about, the letter to the Hebrews, included a lot of believers that didn't want to grow up. They were like the Toys R Us kids, you know, I don't want to grow up. Or remember the old mini wheats commercials, you know, the, the whole grain shredded wheat for the adult in you, but the frosting for the kid in you. Well, these believers wanted some of them, a lot of them, only the sweet, sugary, high fructose, corn syrupy frosting, right? Because they were so immature, they were ill-equipped to handle the pressure of persecution. We've seen direct exhortation from the writer throughout this letter two or three different times where he talks about how they ought to know better by now. And if you remember the context, many believers in this first century, late 60s AD under Nero's persecution were contemplating disassociating with the church in order to avoid persecution. If they sort of reverted back to their Jewish upbringing and their Jewish context, remember these were Jewish believers, Jews who had gotten saved by believing in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for their sins. If they went back to Judaism, Rome really wouldn't bother them much. But when they associated with the way, they were being persecuted, many of them severely. And because of their immaturity, they were making very poor choices in the midst of these trying times. Spiritually speaking, instead of acting like adults, they were acting like babies, spiritually speaking. And to introduce this next section of the letter, I want to play a, a short two-minute humorous video that illustrates just how silly it is when adults act like children. Let's watch. Good morning, Reagan. Good morning. Good morning, Madison. Good morning, Johanna. Good morning, Good morning. Johnny. People are always asking me why. Why do the same thing every year? Why not move on? And I say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Johnny. Present. I'm comfortable. I know the routine. And I don't want to brag, but I'm pretty popular around here. 
do really well in sports. No! No! Not in my house! Well, I'm just very successful yes. here. Why would I go and mess that up by graduating? B. But I mean, in the first grade, I may not know all the answers. D. D. Dog. E. The hours are longer. I hear they don't even have nap time. I mean, I just don't see the upside. Then first grade leads to second grade, second to third. It's really good. Then you're in high school reading boring books with no pictures. Three, four, five. But he was still, still hungry. Next thing you know, people expect you to get a job and give up summer vacation. <laughs> no, sir. I think I found my niche. Thank you very much. Home sweet kindergarten. Besides, I mean, what if I failed first grade? How humiliating would that be? No, just don't think I could handle that kind of embarrassment. That was not a good choice. Very disappointed. <laughs> Is your faith still in kindergarten? That's a good question, really. And as the writer wraps up this letter that we've been looking at for several months now, he's going to give us some indications, uh, ways that we can tell uh, the strength of our faith. Uh, faith on display is what I'm calling this. You know, uh, he gives in this final chapter sort of some closing exhortations and admonitions, as well as some just personal greetings at the very end of the letter. But chapter 13 really serves as an epilogue. And, and, it, and it gives some suggested ways that these believers can live by faith. Now, he's already talked in chapter 11 about faith of great men and women of old who in times past illustrated faith and men and women that we should model our lives after. But now he's going to say, basically, what does faith look like when it's on display in our life? Uh, Warren Wearsby gives a good summary of the final three chapters in Hebrews, and I liked it so much I thought I would just read it to you. He said, the emphasis in this last section of the book is on living by faith. I would say the whole book, of course, is about living by faith, trusting God in trying times. But he presented the great examples of faith, Wearsby says in chapter 11, the encouragements to faith in chapter 12, where we spent the last five weeks, and then we come to chapter 13, he presents the evidences of faith, that should appear in our lives if we are really walking by faith and not by sight. So what qualities should we see in those who are living by faith? This is really just a good sort of self-evaluation. Now, we're not going to ask you to write these down and turn them in, but just between you and the Lord where you sit, ask yourself if these qualities are characteristic in your life. If so, that means you're kind of an indication that you're living a life by faith. And then as a man or woman of faith, you'll be equipped to handle whatever life throws our way. And the first quality that we see is charity. Charity. You know, when, when love for Jesus Christ wanes, our love for each other, brothers and sisters, tends to falter as well. These believers, as I said, were contemplating shunning the Jesus who saved them. And in so doing, they were shunning many of the believers who were assembling regularly on the first day of the week in their community. Many of the believers whose faith remained strong, these believers were distancing themselves from. 
those with a strong, encouraging faith, illustrate, he says in verse 1, love for the brothers. He says, let brotherly love continue. Short and simple. Brotherly love is actually just one word in Greek, and you'll be familiar with it. It's the Greek word Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Now, we say Philadelphia. Greek is Philadelphia. And, of course, that city, most of you know, is, is the city of brotherly love. It's the Greek word for brotherly love, meaning love for a fellow believer. It's only used six times in the New Testament. And, uh, and, and the namesake of that city in Pennsylvania is this idea of the city of brotherly love. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. I've spent a ton of time in Philadelphia, done many speaking engagements there, and then also for several years traveled through Philly to go up to uh, Scranton where I did my doctoral work. And um, I'm not sure if they got that right or not. To me, it's more like the city of brotherly shove, but that's another, uh, that's another story. That's coming from a Dallas Cowboys fan, and you know how we feel about Philadelphia Eagles. But in Greek, there's actually three basic kinds of, of love. Uh, there's what most people are familiar with, agape, the Greek word for unconditional love. That's the kind of love God shows us when he, even though we were sinners, sent his son to die on the cross in our place and rise again. Then there's the Greek word eros, which refers to sensual or physical love. It's where we get the English word erotic. That word's not used in the New Testament, but it is a Greek word for love. And then, of course, there's this word, philadelphia which speaks of the unique affection that we should have toward other Christians because of the close bond that we have in Christ. And so because these believers were basically turning their backs on Christ, apostatizing, many of them already had and some of them were contemplating that, it was harder for them to show love for one another. Conversely, if, as the Bible tells us, we have brotherly love for one another, there's this synergy that takes place. And in the, the, the love that we have for one another, it sort of points us all toward the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and helps us stay close to Him. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, we're going to look at this passage twice. I'll come back to it again in a moment. uses this word Philadelphia when he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And if you notice, he connects this brotherly love in the same exhortation here to diligence and serving the Lord, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Again, there's this, there's this connection there. Those who are walking by faith have a steadfast trust in the Lord, no matter what life may throw their way, are going to be loving people. They're going to show brotherly love toward one another. As Paul told the Thessalonians, be, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's another example of that word Philadelphia. Now, even though that word refers to brotherly love, love between Christians, the unique bond that we have with one another and the affection that we have for one another. And by the way, in times of trial, especially the kind of uh, broad, widespread persecution that these believers were facing in that Roman world at that time. And by the way, we may find ourselves in America facing similar types of persecution, just like many Christians all across the globe are facing even now. Uh, but when that happens, this brotherly love is particularly important 
because again, it, it causes us to come together to help one another and to recognize we're all in this together. And although brotherly love refers to that love between Christians, there are other passages in the New Testament that remind us that we should have unconditional love for one another, such as in 1 John chapter 2, where John writes, He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. He who loves his brother, that's the word agape, unconditional love, abides in the light. Now John, of course, in his epistle is writing about fellowship for the Christian. He's not writing his epistle to teach us how to know how to get saved or how to know if we're saved. He affirms the fact that his audience is born again and heaven-bound many, many, many times by calling them brothers. He's talking about fellowship. And as we've talked about in other uh, contexts, it's possible for a believer who is eternally secure, positionally in Christ, adopted into the family of God, that issue is settled. It's still nevertheless possible for us to be out of fellowship, out of that intimacy, that closeness with our loving Father. In the same way that in a horizontal level, humanly speaking, uh, you know, a husband and wife may be united in marriage, yet there are going to be times when there's tension and disagreements and they're fighting and so forth. The fellowship is not as sweet. And the same thing is true in First John. He introduces the letter by reminding us that we can have fellowship if we walk in the light as He is in the light. When we sin, when we disobey God's Word, we're not walking in the light. No one can be sinning, no believer can be sinning and claim to be in the light at the same time. It just doesn't work that way. It's it's not the born of God part of us, the new nature that produces sin. When we sin, we're walking in the flesh. We're catering to the old man within us, as Paul uses that dichotomy. So that's the context here in chapter 2. And he says, if you say you're in the light, that is, you're in fellowship with God, but you're not loving your brother. Again, it's not a, a Philadelphia here. It's agape. Then you're really not. You're out of fellowship. But notice what he says at the end of this verse. He who loves his brother abides in the light. Abide there means to remain close, remain in fellowship. So if you love your brother, you're fellowshipping in the light with the Lord Jesus. But there's no cause for stumbling in him. Uh, when, we, when we have that kind of charity, that kind of love for one another, it makes us less prone to stumble, to turn away. There's an implicit accountability there. And so faith is on display when we show love, when we show charity to others, even in uh, trying times. And that love will have a dynamic influence on those around us. And then building on that, he says in verse 2 that faith is on display when we show hospitality toward one another. Now, charity and hospitality are closely related, but one is an attitude, the other is an action, right? If you have charity, then you'll be hospitable. And notice what he says in verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers. Now, he goes on to say, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And we're going to come back to that in a minute because I really want to talk about this idea of angels. And the writer has had a lot to say about angels. But I want to focus on this phrase, entertain strangers. And yet again, in Greek, of course, remembering the Bible was not written, the New Testament was not written in English originally, it was written in Greek. This, these two words, once again, are the translation of one a Greek word. Uh, and it's a Greek word that literally means love of strangers. It, it, it's philozenia, philozenia, right? Uh, it's only used two times in the New Testament. And we might think of the word xenophobia. It means, uh, you know, fear, phobia of strangers, xenos, right? So 
fear of strangers or fear of foreigners, xenophobia. Well, this is philozenia, love of strangers. And it's translated uh, hospitality uh, in Scripture sometimes. Or in our text, it was translated entertain uh, strangers. Now, we looked at Romans 12 a second ago. I told you we were going to come back to it. If we go past the part that we read and keep reading, we see that Paul uses this word, philozenia. He says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. There it is. There it is. Philozenia. So if we go back to the text, he says, do not forget to entertain strangers. Why? Well, because you might actually be in the presence of an angel and not realize it. Now, the writer started out way back in chapter 1 and 2 talking a lot about angels. And these Jewish believers in the first century were well-versed in angelology because angels had played such a pivotal role in Israel's history. Remember, both Abraham and Lot showed hospitality to angels at one point in their lives. Uh, and the original readers would have certainly understood and remembered that Old Testament account. So this... This uh, admonition, this uh, encouragement that the writer is giving really touches on two separate reminders. First, be lovingly hospitable to others. But second, don't forget the ministry of angels. Again, he talked about that. He called angels uh, ministering servants in the first century. The, uh, these first century Jewish Christians had become somewhat obsessed with angels and in some cases thought that uh, this angelic ministry superseded even Christ's ministry. And so Jesus, uh, so the writer of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is much superior, and uh, more powerful than any uh, angel. Uh, so, but I think kind of coming back to this notion of angels at the end sort of bookends it. But in this case, he's reminding them that angels, again, are ministering spirits. And when you're entertaining strangers, showing uh, Philozenia, uh, you know, love of strangers, hospitality to people, you might actually be entertaining an angel. Very interesting. Have you ever stopped to consider that God might be sending angels our way to encourage us or help us, and yet sometimes we push them away in anger or hatred, thinking that they're strangers? I mean, that's a profound thought, right? So let's take just a quick moment to review angels. Now, we've talked about this last fall in our nine o'clock hour, but I want to give you a quick uh, primer on angels and what the Bible has to say about them. Remember, we know that Satan, who is the prince of demons, is conspiring to take over the world, and the co-conspirators that are working with him to take over this world, which is his playground, remember the Bible says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, include both human agents and demons. And demons are fallen angels. So we need to recognize there is a spiritual war going on, a spiritual unseen battle. Ephesians 6 talks about how we battle against not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and uh, you know, unseen realm. And so this is true both on the positive side and the negative side. Now all demons started out as angels. So let's look at what the Bible says about angels. Angels are not the souls of deceased people. That's a terrible myth that has no basis in biblical truth. It's propagated by uh, Hollywood, and uh, but angels are created beings, just like human beings are created. They don't propagate. There's the same number of angels today as there was the day God created them, and they fall into two categories. There are unfallen angels, 
which is what we think of when we use the term angel. And then there are fallen angels, which we call demons. And the Bible calls demons. You know, if you look at the, the unfallen angels, we'll call these the good guys. Um, they are out ministering, serving, uh, protecting, encouraging. Uh, they're ministering spirits, the, the Bible says in Hebrews. And so the writer is saying, watch out when you're entertaining a stranger because you might actually be in the presence of an angel. And uh, so be aware of that. But then the bad guys are these guys down here, the, the fallen angels, the, the demons. And the Bible tells us that one-third of the original angels fell when Satan was cast out of heaven, Lucifer. And so we know that in the angelic realm, there two-thirds are the good guys and one-third are the bad guys, right? And of these bad guys, if you will, they're further broken up into some who are loose and active today that are conspiring with Satan to help him defeat God and somehow usher in this satanic one-world system, which he will do, by the way, for one seven-year period until Christ comes back and casts the Antichrist into the lake of fire and takes the throne and rules the world. We talked about that in our 9 o'clock hour. Uh, but there are also some demons who have been imprisoned and uh, they have crossed a line. They made, uh, committed uh, sins that were so abhorrent to God that he put them in prison. Some of them, some of those will be released, according to the book of Revelation in chapter 9, temporarily in that final three and a half year cosmic struggle, because Satan will need all the help he can get in that battle, which of course he's already lost. He doesn't, just doesn't accept that fact. Um, but then some of them are permanently imprisoned. In Tartarus, these are the ones who left their proper domain in Genesis 6, cohabited with women, created this hybrid race, Genesis 6 tells us. Jude talks about it. Peter talks about it as well. And those demons will never be released. They will ultimately find their home in the lake of fire, which Jesus said was prepared, Matthew 25. We'll get to that verse in our study at 9 o'clock hour. Jesus said that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels quote, unquote, talking about demons. So those permanently uh, 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 imprisoned demons will not ever be released. Um, but that's the, the bad guys, if you will. Now, I know, you know, when I read this, sometimes I wonder in having met some strangers if maybe I'm meeting a bad angel. I don't know. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. He was talking about the good angels, that sometimes God sends us angels as ministering spirits and we ought to show hospitality in general, but especially in light of the fact that God may be sending us an angel. So, hospitality. Uh, we don't want to be xenophobic. We want to be philogenic, right? We don't want to have a fear of strangers. We want to love strangers. And then the third way that faith is on display is empathy. Not only does trusting God manifest itself in our lives through charity and hospitality, but we're also able to show more empathy. He says in verse 3, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also in the body. So the prisoners he's talking about here were those Christians who are already suffering for their testimony during this Roman tyranny. Some of them had been imprisoned. Some of them had been burned at the stake. Some of them had had their property uh, stolen. Uh, Hebrews, of course, was written, as I've mentioned, between 64 and 67 A.D., and we have a historical record 
of the existence of a significant number of prisoners around 64 AD. Uh, so that kind of shows the trustworthiness of God's uh, word. Um, so he says, look, when he says you're in the body, means basically, you know, you're still in your mortal bodies and you could face the same thing. So let's not forget those, our brothers and sisters that are in prison. In the last letter that Paul wrote, and again, we don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews. I'm inclined to think he did, but the Bible is silent, so we can't say with certainty. But there are a lot of, a lot of parallels, a lot of evidence that I think supports that view. We just looked at one of them, and that is the characteristic tendency of Paul to give all this doctrinal information and then close out with some practical admonitions. He did the same thing in Romans, and, and we see the writer of Hebrews doing uh, the same thing. But in the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, if you recall, Paul urged Timothy not to be ashamed of him uh, because he was a prisoner, right? So these, this culture, the Christian culture in that day, was very familiar with what it meant to be in prison. Uh, we are unbelievably blessed in our culture because for 2,000 years of church history, Christians have been extremely familiar with what it means to be in prison. Many brothers and sisters in Christ have been imprisoned and are being imprisoned today. In fact, there are more martyrs today than at any other time in church history. Our neighbors uh, to the north in Canada has been imprisoning pastors for preaching against homosexuality or imprisoning pastors uh, for uh, holding services when they were told they couldn't. Uh, and we've seen a little bit of that, pockets of that, even in our own country with this latest uh, response to the pandemic where pastors were fined and you know people outside in the open air singing praises to our God were hauled off and arrested so it's not that far from reality even for us but we need to understand that prison and Christianity go together that that's the history of both the New Testament church as well as 2,000 years of church history and when we have a strong faith it's going to lead us to empathize with those you know empathy comes from either a shared experience or the recognition that an experience might be shared. And I thought of a vivid example of uh, empathy from the ministry of the prophet Ezekiel. If you go back to Ezekiel uh, chapter 3, this is that weird passage where Ezekiel is told by the Lord to eat the scroll. God had given Ezekiel a powerful vision of his glory, and then he gave him a message to deliver to the Jewish exiles. Now, the historical setting is these Jews had been for a couple hundred years out in, in, in uh, captivity and by Babylon. Their city was destroyed. It was a very dark day in Israel's history. And Ezekiel was prophesying and ministering to those uh, persecuted Jews in, in his day. And uh, as motivation for him to give this message and to understand the message that he was giving to his Jewish uh, counterparts, God guided Ezekiel through the Spirit to physically travel to where they were living, some of them, the Jewish exiles, the Chabar River at the Tel Aviv. And notice what it says, Then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv who had dwelt by the river Chabar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them for seven days. For seven days Ezekiel sat with these Jewish exiles in the midst of one of their destroyed cities. He sat where they sat. That's empathy. It's to put yourself in another's shoes. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was asking his readers to do. 
to walk by faith, to show empathy as a display of their steadfast faith. You know, I, I spent a, a number of years in my early days in ministry uh, in sales, supplementing my income. And I remember hearing an old saying among uh, salesmen, and maybe you've heard it, it goes like this. If you would sell John Smith what John Smith buys, you must see John Smith through John Smith's eyes. <laughs> That's empathy, really. That's understanding your audience in the sales world. But in the Christian world, it's empathy. And faith is on display through empathy. And then we come to verse 4. Now this next verse seems a bit out of place, honestly. It's really thrown people for a loop. In fact, as I kind of studied this out of curiosity, I looked at several different treatments of this passage. None of them got it right, in my view, which is not uncommon. But when we understand the cultural context, when we read Scripture in its literal, grammatical, historical setting, things begin to make sense. And so he says in verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, right? So in the midst of the chaos and the mayhem that the Roman persecution was causing in the first century church, which as we said, remember the church was still very much in its infancy. It was only 30 years old. The church was born in, in 33 AD. This is 64, 65, 66 AD, somewhere in that time frame. So church had matured somewhat, but it was still sort of finding its way. Um, but when this persecution ratcheted up and Christians began to get killed and persecuted and imprisoned, boy, uh, many social norms just went out the window. And these first century Christians, a lot of them, including some of the ones that he was writing to, had adopted this eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die approach to life. I mean, this is, you know, woe is me. And he reminds them by, that by living by faith, that means they got to trust God's commands and obey them, even in the midst of tough times. He reminds them that God will judge fornicators, those who have sex before getting married, and adulterers, those that have sex outside of marriage. About 700 years earlier, the Jewish people had faced another threat. Not the Romans, but the Assyrians. And the prophet Isaiah issued a similar warning. The people of Judah and Jerusalem in the 8th century B.C. were facing an imminent threat from the Assyrians that was not unlike the 1st century Hebrew Christians' threat from Rome. And the Jews in Isaiah's day were trusting in their own walls around the city to be their protector. They failed to look to God, to Yahweh, to trust in Him to save them. And once it became clear that their walls were no match for the Assyrians, they gave up. And, you know, listen to what it says. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, but instead, the people responded with joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, people in the ancient Near East used cattle for, you know, and sheep for producing milk and wool and practical things. They didn't slaughter them to eat very often because they provided valuable, valuable products, right? Um, remember the, in the New Testament, uh, the killing of the fatted calf, right? So killing these animals to eat showed the people's utter despair and their self-indulgence and their attitude that there's no future left for us. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. So if we go back to the text, the original recipients... We're throwing off their faith in God, 
And, and therefore, since they had sort of abandoned their community of faith, they were saying, ah, it's, it's the curtains. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. We might as well forget it. Let's just have fun. Who cares about God's Word? Not much to live for anyway. Why not? They reasoned. And the writer says, no, there's most definitely something to live for. And there always is for God's people. Trusting God always pays off both now and in the kingdom to come, which he's had a lot to say about the future kingdom. So, so obey God. Be pure. Living by faith evidences itself in purity. Those who have weak faith and abandon the church and abandon the Lord in times of trouble are going to display inconsistent and often immoral actions in all areas of life. Purity. And then he closes out with dependency and security. Let's talk about dependency first. As is always the case with tyranny, not all persecution is created equal. Some people in the first century Christian community were facing far worse persecution than others. The Romans, as tyrannical and brutal as they were, didn't have the benefit of you know, pervasive video cameras and NSA fusion centers and a global surveillance police state and a see-something-say-something something snitch campaign, right? So they had limitations on their resources, and that meant that some Jewish Christians might escape unnoticed. And that created this mentality of comparison among believers. Why is so-and-so getting off scot-free and my family's being arrested? The writer addresses this by reminding his readers to get their eyes off of other people and keep them on God. Remember what he had said at the outset of chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. And so here he says something quite similar. Be content with such things as you have. Don't covet. You know, one of the results of persecution had been the loss of property. The writer uh, talks about this in chapter 10. We looked at it a few weeks ago. When, when the writer says, For you had compassion on me in my change, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. So these readers, many of them, had already had their property uh, stolen. And in these circumstances, the Christian response is, is not to focus all the more readily on your material possessions, but to rely quietly, confidently, and steadfastly on God's provision, even in the face of unfair treatment. You know, God had promised, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And, and you know, we, this is the same thing, by the way, he always makes these references to the Old Testament uh, community, Jewish community, uh, on the banks of the Jordan River. When the wilderness generation was about to, uh, well, not the one that left, because they had unbelief, but the next generation was about to cross over the Jordan and face the giants in the land. And Christians in the first century face giants of their own, and we do too. And sometimes it's easy to forget who we depend on and to look at others. And one of the most tragic things, I think, is when we look at other Christians who are suffering and we hastily conclude, well, they must have done something wrong. God's punishing them. But like we've been talking about the last several weeks, God doesn't punish believers ever. Not a single place in Scripture that talks about punishment for believers. That's the whole point of our being rescued from the penalty of sin. We do not face judgment or punishment. God's discipline, sure. And yes, sometimes God's discipline falls on believers who disobey. 
But not all bad things that happen to believers, not all bad things that happen to good people are the result of our own actions. Sometimes life just gives us a raw deal. And this, I think, admonition about let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with what you have is basically an admonition to say, keep dependent on God. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Uh, stop looking at others. Uh, our strength is in the Lord. Faith shows itself, I think, most brilliantly in a steadfast, contented dependence on the Lord. And we can do that because of the sixth evidence of faith, and that is security. When we see that those who walk by faith are secure, then we understand we should all walk by faith. See, it's, it's doubts that lead to inconsistent behavior. Confidence leads to consistent behavior. Uh, he says, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? He's quoting the famous Davidic Psalm, Psalm 27 here. And if anybody knew the source of our security, it was David, both as a shepherd and as a king. David had to trust the Lord. I mean, just, uh, you know, think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? He's with me through the deep, dark valleys. He leads me to green pastures. He provides for me. We see another psalm of David echoing the same thought in Psalm 20. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, a reference to himself as a king. The Israel's kings were anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We could easily paraphrase that in our current culture. You know, some trust in bank accounts, some trust in their guns. And by the way, I'm as pro-gun as, as anybody. You ought you ought to be able to defend yourself, and and uh, and you you you'd be silly not to at this point. Uh, you ought to have personal protection. But at the end of the day, when the Luciferian elite and the global oligarchs that decide it's time to usher in the one world system come rolling at you with tanks and drones and all that, at some point you're just going to have to trust God, right? You're not going to be able to defeat the mightiest military in the world with your, you know, double barrel shotgun. But you can defeat certain enemies with that. So be on notice, enemies who might be listening. <laughs> but security. Faith is on display when those who are facing persecution have a, a certain calmness and confidence because they know they're secure. They know where their security lies. It's in the Lord. So faith on display. Just some practical reminders of what it looks like or should look like in our lives if we are men and women of faith. We will show charity and hospitality We'll show empathy and live pure lives. We'll show dependency and recognize the source of our security. So our takeaway is just the question that be, we began with, and that is, is your faith still in kindergarten? You know, when everything's going well in life, you know, you're meeting the bills, you got a good job, you're good, your relationships are good, your kids are talking to you, you know, you, nothing bad's happening, the car's running great, you know, it's pretty easy. To, to go on. But when life throws you a curve, that's when you find out really how strong your faith is. And now's the time to evaluate that faith as a believer. Um, 
and make sure you've graduated. Hopefully not just to the first grade, but let's go all the way to, you know, PhD level faith, right? Because that's what it may take uh, as life sometimes throws us a curve. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for just the, the richness of this passage and the richness of the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the repeated calls to walk by faith and to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we pray if there's one here, either online or in this room, that does not know you, never taken that initial step of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. I pray that today would be the day of salvation and in simple childlike faith that person would trust in your Son and our Savior. And for those of us who know you that are part of the family of God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, help us to look to you, not to any of our possessions or circumstances, but to you, and to trust steadfastly in your provision. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Amen. Thanks, Jamie, for that admonition.